Now, as we've, as I said before, this is uh, the month of October is Reformation Month, and because it's Reformation Month, I'd like us uh, to take the opportunity to trace the storyline of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, uh, because to trace the storyline of the Reformation is to trace the story of four particular men. And I believe that if we know the story of these four men, we will know, for the most part, the story of the Reformation. And we will be able to see how God, in his providence, how he used these men to reform the church of Jesus Christ. And the story of the Reformation, it goes from Martin Luther to William Tyndale to John Calvin to John Knox. And as we trace the steps of these four men, we will follow the flow of the Reformation. We'll follow the flow from the German Reformation to the English Reformation to the Swiss Reformation and to the Scottish Reformation. And this movement of reform, it took a period of about 55 years. The Reformation, it didn't happen overnight. It took time. And it wasn't the result of one man. It was the result of a body of men. And last time we saw that the story of the Reformation, it began, with, began in Germany uh, with the reformer Martin Luther. But this evening I'd like us to consider the connection between the influence of the German Reformation under Martin Luther and the connection with the influence of the English Reformation under William Tyndale. And as I said before, the way in which I'd like us to, you could say, meet the reformers, that's what we're doing, we're meeting the reformers. And the way I'd like us to do it is the same way in which we interview a minister at the Congregational Fellowship. Because every time we interview a minister at the Congregational Fellowship, we use the headings Childhood, Conversion, Call and Congregation. But because we're meeting the Reformers, and they are men who made a huge contribution to the Church of Jesus Christ, I'd like us to use the fifth heading as Contribution. So, this evening we're considering William Tyndale under the headings Childhood, Conversion, Call, Congregation and Contribution. Okay, so first of all, childhood. William Tyndale was born in Gloucestershire in England in 1494. And other than the year of his birth, we don't know much about Tyndale's childhood. But what we do know and what I'd like us to think about is the kind of church service William Tyndale would have attended in his youth. Because prior to the Reformation, church services, they were completely unlike the church services that we are familiar with today. Not only because church services then, they were held in cathedrals, and they would have decorations and stained glass windows and images of, of Christ crucified on the cross, but also instead of a pulpit, where the word of God is, is central, the priest would be standing before an altar and he would be robed in all these ornate vestments and he would apply the seven sacraments to the congregation and that's how he would infuse grace to them. And at the center of the sacramental worship was the mass. And the mass would be performed with lots of prayers, prayers to the saints, prayers to Mary, and there would be a lot of bowing and kissing the altar, making the sign of the cross. And there'd be all this chanting going on. And then the climax of the Mass with the bread and the wine, uh, the priest would offer up to God the very body 
and the very blood of Jesus Christ. And then mixed into all the worship was the word of God, but it was all in Latin. The Bible reading was in Latin, the sermon was in Latin, but the people didn't know Latin. Only the clergy knew Latin. And William Tyndale, like many people in England and throughout Europe at the time, they would attend church services, but they would have no idea what was being said. The entire service was in a language that they, that they didn't understand. But more than that, because the people didn't have Latin and they couldn't read Latin, they didn't have a Bible in their homes. In the homes of many people throughout England and throughout Scotland, throughout Europe, no one had a Bible. But in particular in Britain, no one had an English Bible. Which meant the Bible wasn't read in the home. There was no such thing as family worship. And there was no opportunity to read the Bible and to learn about God and salvation through Jesus Christ. Everything was done through the church. Facilitated by the priests. And it was all in Latin. And you know, this is what gave the church power. Because the church could interpret the Bible any way they wanted and no one could question it because the ordinary man in the street couldn't understand the Bible or even read the Bible. And even the Pope, he could teach whatever he wanted and claim authority over the Bible and nothing could be said. And that's what happened. The church was controlling the people and there was no freedom of worship and there was no possibility of questioning the church in anything. In fact, Roman Catholicism taught, and it still teaches today, that there is no salvation outside the church. And so if you're outside the church, if you're not baptized, you'll be condemned to the fires of hell. Now, of course, we know that the Bible teaches that our baptism doesn't save us because it's a sign and seal of God's promises to us. But that's not what Roman Catholicism teaches. Roman Catholicism teaches that you're justified by your baptism. And then you're sanctified by the sacraments. But looking at the Bible, they're wrong. And they're leading people into error because no one in the Catholic Church was allowed to own a Bible or to see the Bible for themselves. They had to submit to the authority of the Church and not to the authority of Scripture. And you know, in the day and age which we live in, with Bibles, we have Bibles in our cupboards and our, we have Bibles in every format, every version, every language possible. We've got it printed or even electronic. And yet we take for granted the fact that we have the Bible in our own language. And we have the ability to read it. And we even have the ability to meditate upon it. We take it for granted. But when William Tyndale was in his childhood and many others before him... They didn't have the privileges that we have today. And to some extent, you know, it's very difficult for us to actually comprehend how viciously opposed the Catholic Church was to the translation of the Bible and to the reading of the Bible in English. And just to explain, at the beginning of the 15th century, so in 1401, which is nearly a century before William Tyndale was born, the Parliament, which was enforced by the Catholic Church, they passed a law making heresy punishable by burning people alive at the stake. And sadly, the law was passed with the Bible translators in view. 
And then only a few years later, in 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he created what they called Constitutions of Oxford. And these constitutions, they said, it is a dangerous thing to translate the text of Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter, by his own authority, translate any text of Scripture into English or any other tongue, and that no man may read any such book in part or in whole. The church claims sole authority. And the grip that the Church of Rome had upon the people was that they threatened to burn you alive for simply reading the Bible in English. And there are many accounts of of this in John Fox's Book of Martyrs. It tells of men who were burned at the stake for just possessing the Lord's Prayer in English. And other men who were burned for trying to teach their children the Lord's Prayer in English. But, you know, when we consider the upbringing of William Tyndale, we not only have to consider what was going on in the church, on the, in the ecclesiastical scene, we also have to consider what was happening in the political scene, because they both come together. Because as well as the beginning of a reformation taking place in the church, there was also this, the beginning of a reformation taking place in the state. And interestingly, both the church and the state, they coincide with one another. And they reformed together. Uh, Because early in the 16th century, Henry VIII, he's well known to us, he was on the throne of England. And although Henry VIII, he was a a deeply religious Catholic, he attended the Mass, said to be three times a day, and he supported the Pope in any way that he could. But Henry wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon. And Henry wanted to divorce her because of her failure to give her a male heir to the throne. But in order to put Catherine to one side, Henry needed to have his marriage dissolved by Pope Clement. Problem was, Pope Clement was under the power of the Roman Emperor, Charles V. And Charles V, he so happened to be a nephew of Catherine of Aragon. And so it was this very complicated family dispute. And the dispute, it it finally reached boiling point when the Roman Emperor Charles V and Pope Clement, they refused to dissolve the marriage between Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. And that move, it drove Henry VIII to seeking not only a divorce with his wife, but also a divorce with the Catholic Church. And in 1532, a number of laws, they began to be passed in England. That saw the Church of England becoming more and more independent from the Pope and more and more dependent upon the King. Where the Church in England was, you could say it was given new headship. Headship was given not to the Pope, but to the King of England. That time the King became the head of the Church and not the Pope. That was 1532. Ten years earlier... In 1522, that's when everything changed for William Tyndale. So that brings us to consider his conversion, childhood conversion. In 1522, at the age of 28, William Tyndale, he was already an ordained priest, having studied at Oxford University. But Tyndale's conversion, it came when he was serving as this private tutor in the home of a wealthy 
man called Sir John Walsh. And Tyndale's remit at the time, he wasn't preaching. He was just teaching Sir John Walsh's children. He was teaching them Greek, using the Greek New Testament as a textbook. Now, by this point, the Greek New Testament had only been in print for about six years. In 1516, the Dutch scholar Erasmus, he had produced the first ever printed edition of the Greek New Testament. And, you know, we can't underestimate the role that Erasmus played in the Reformation. That's a name we should remember. Because even though Erasmus, he didn't want to break with Rome, he didn't want to leave the Catholic Church. His work on the Greek New Testament, it was, for the most part, that was the catalyst to the Reformation. Because in 1522, while Tyndale was tutoring children the Greek New Testament, Martin Luther was translating the Greek New Testament into German. And he was having it printed and distributed throughout Germany. And what's remarkable is that Tyndale wouldn't be far behind Luther in his translation of the Greek New Testament into English. Because as Tyndale taught Greek to the children of Sir John Walsh, And as he spent more time studying the Greek text, he came to this deeper understanding of the word of God. In fact, Tyndale became so convinced of the Reformation principles that he began to preach. He began to preach God's word. Of course, the Catholic Church, they didn't like it. They didn't want anyone preaching God's word. But you know, it seems that Tyndale's break with Rome, it finally came when he was having dinner. At the house, in the house of Sir John Walsh. Uh, Sir John Walsh, he would often invite many learned men to come round for dinner and have dinner with uh, the Walsh family. And Tyndale was there. And at the dinner table, Tyndale would be constantly talking about things that he was seeing in the Greek text. And it said that on one particular occasion, a Catholic priest was there. He was there for dinner. And he got so fed up with Tyndale mouthing off about the Greek text all the time that the priest made this audacious statement across the dinner table. He said to him, we would be better off without the word of God because all we need is the Pope's interpretation. But you know, Tyndale, he just fired back. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. In fact, said Tyndale, if God spares my life, I will cause a boy that drives the plough in the field to know more of the scriptures than you do. And with that Tyndale, he felt this call to overthrow the power and the errors of Rome by translating the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew languages into English. And like it was for Luther in Germany, Tyndale had become convinced that the word of God It was not just for the elect clergy. It was for everyone, including the man on the street. And so that brings us, thirdly, to look at his call. We've looked at his childhood, his conversion, but thirdly, William Tyndale's call. Now, after this dispute around the dinner table in the house of Sir John Walsh, Tyndale, he came to this sobering realisation that the majority of people in his nation... They were lost. Tyndale could see that their ignorance of scripture meant ignorance of salvation. And the result was they were perishing. And so Tyndale's solution and his desire 
was to place into the hand of every man in Britain the word of God in their own language. But, but as we know, the church, they had put up this wall around the Bible. They couldn't touch it, warning that if anyone translated the Bible or even read the Bible in English, they would be burned. And so just a year later, in 1523, Tyndale, he travelled to London hoping to escape this condemnation. And he was seeking official authorization for translating the Bible into English. And he was seeking authorization from the Bishop of London. And Tyndale, he had hoped that the Bishop of London would side with him because the Bishop of London was someone who had worked alongside Erasmus in producing the Greek New Testament. But the Bishop of London refused. He refused to help Tyndale because he had heard of all that was going on in Germany and the printing of Luther's Bible and the chaos it was causing because Luther's translation of the Bible, it was stirring up a storm in Germany. And the church was beginning to lose its power and its, its dominance over the people. And so the Bishop of London, he, he didn't want to take responsi responsibility for anything like that happening in England. So he refused Tyndale's request. And you know, if we were in Tyndale's shoes, the Bishop of London saying to us, no, this isn't, this isn't the way it's going to be. You know, if we were in Tyndale's shoes, I'm, I'm sure that most of us would have concluded, well, this is the Lord closing the door on us. This is the Lord closing the door. Not to go any further. But you know, Tyndale, he didn't take no for an answer. Because even if the door was closed, Tyndale was ready and willing to knock the door down in order to translate the word of God into English. And so in 1524, Tyndale, he left England and he went to Germany. And for the rest of his life, Tyndale would live as an exile from his people and an outlaw against Henry VIII, just so that he could translate the Bible into English. And the first place Tyndale went in Germany was to Wittenberg, and he went to meet Martin Luther. That's where Luther comes into the story. And in Wittenberg, working from Erasmus's Greek text and the Latin translation of the Bible and Luther's German version, Tyndale sat down to translate the Bible into English. And you know, what's remarkable is that at the same time of translating the Bible into English, Tyndale began to teach himself Hebrew. Now, this blows your mind. And the reason he, he taught was trying to teach himself Hebrew was because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and he's trying to translate it into English. And well, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written originally in Greek. And you know, it's amazing to think that in all of Europe, hardly anyone knew he Hebrew, let alone taught it. In fact, there wasn't one teacher in all of England who was a teacher of the Hebrew language. And yet Hebrew would be Tyndale's eighth language to master. And there's no doubt God had given Tyndale a gift with languages. Tyndale knew English, Latin, Greek, German, French, Spanish, Italian, and Hebrew. And it said that Tyndale knew all these languages so well that whenever he spoke them, natives thought that he had been born in their country. But after being in Wittenberg for less than a year, Tyndale was ready to publish his work on the New Testament. 
And one historian says that Tyndale's New Testament, it was a gem of a translation. It was accurate and beautiful. You could say it was a a page turner. But of course, to the English bishops, Tyndale's New Testament was dangerous. And it was dangerous because Tyndale's translation, it completely changed how people understand the Bible. Because phrases like do penance, they were translated as repent. Church was translated as congregation. Confess was now simply acknowledge. Acts of charity, which the Catholic Church promoted, was translated as love. Love one another. And with all these changes, you know, it pulled the carpet from right from under the feet of the Roman Catholic Church. Because how to be saved and what it meant to be a Christian, it now looked completely different. Because in the place of all these outward forms and external rituals in order to get into heaven, the call was now for a change of heart. It was all reformation on the inside. But you know, although Tyndale's translation was dangerous to the English bishops, it was going to be salvation to the English-speaking people. And that's where we come fourthly to congregation. Childhood conversion, call, and congregation. Now, although he wasn't an ordained, although he was an ordained priest, he didn't have a congregation of his own. Tyndale wasn't preaching week by week in a parish. But you know, you could say that Tyndale sought to shepherd his own home nation with his production of the English Bible. Because Tyndale, he cared for his own people. He saw that they were lost and he wanted them to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so in 1525, Tyndale, he leaves the city of Wittenberg and he travels to the city of Cologne. And the reason Tyndale stopped in Cologne was because it was this densely populated city and it would make it easier for him to blend in. Nobody would know that he's there. He'd go unnoticed. And it would also be easier for him to find a publisher to print his work. And of course, as a fugitive from England, if Tyndale was caught meant capital punishment. He'd be burned at the stake. And if those publishing his work got caught, well, it would be the same for them as well. And so in 1525, printing begins on Tyndale's translation of the English Bible. And you know, it was an exciting time for Tyndale. But it didn't take long for something to go horribly wrong. One night, the printers who were working in the print shop, they go out in the town And they get drunk. And as you know, when someone has had a few too many, the tongue becomes loose. And that's what happened with the printers. The printers began to talk about this top secret project that they were working on. And as you can expect, the word got round and it got round to the authorities. And there was this raid on the print shop in the middle of the night. But astonishingly, Tyndale is tipped. He's tipped about what's happened in the pub. And he runs to the back of the print shop and he gathers all of his life's work and he escapes into the night one step ahead of the authorities. And Tyndale, he he travels down the Rhine River in Germany and he comes to the city of Burns. So he leaves leaves Cologne and he comes down to the city of Worms. And Worms, it should be a familiar city to us because it was in Worms that Martin Luther stood before the emperor. And made his great statement. His defence of the faith. 
And it was because of Martin Luther and his stand in Worms and his influence that the city of Worms had became sympathetic to the Reformation. And so Tyndale, he, he travelled to Worms under the cover of darkness in order to complete his life's work of printing the Bible into English. His sole desire was that his people would have the word of God. But you know, we have to take into account that the reason Tyndale went to Worms, of all cities to go to, was not only because there was this sympathy towards the Reformation, because having struggled in Cologne, Tyndale knew that his choice of city was integral to his plan succeeding. Because the city of choice, it had to be near a sea-flowing river in order to ship all these Bibles out towards England. And Worms, well, it was on the Rhine River. The city also had to be near this supply of paper and have all the facilities for printing which Worms had. And the city also had to be large enough, just like it was in Cologne, it had to be large enough so that he could remain anonymous whilst he carried out all his work. And Worms fitted the criteria. And you know, what's remarkable is that it didn't take long. It didn't take long for Tyndale's work to be finished. A year later, 1526, for the first time in history, the New Testament had been translated into English out of the original Greek. 3,000 copies were published and they were hidden in bales of cloth and then they were put onto ships and then they were smuggled up the Rhine River out into the North Sea. And the ships, they came across the North Sea and they landed on the east coast of England and the southeast coast of Scotland. And you know, it's hard to believe that at one time in our nation's history that Bibles had to be smuggled into our country just so people could read the word of God. And yet, as I said, we take our Bible for granted. We don't read it like we should. We don't meditate upon it like we should. We don't spend time with it like we should. And yet, we're seeing here, Tyndale risked life and limb just so we could read the Bible in our language. But of course, Tyndale, he wasn't working on his own. There were many wealthy merchants in England who financed and they smuggled and they distributed Tyndale's translation when it came into the country. It was a coordinated work and under the hand of God it was very, very successful. And it was successful because like Tyndale, these men in England and Scotland, they loved God and they loved God's word and they loved God's people and they longed for reformation and for their own people to read the word of God in their own language. And it was amazing. The nation we're in today, it's ignorant of the Bible, just like it was in Tyndale's day. And you know, we have to be like these people. We have to love God. We have to love the word. And we have to love the people so that we'll bring the word of God to them, to those who are completely ignorant of the Bible. And so we've considered the childhood, the conversion, the calling, the congregation of William Tyndale. But last of all, I'd like us to consider the contribution. The contribution of William Tyndale. After the first dispatch, or the first dis, well, dispatch is a good word, the dispatch of English Bibles to Britain, that was in 1526. 
Then William Tyndale, he would continue to edit his work for the next 10 years. And in that time, he would make some 3,000 improvements. His second edition of the New Testament, it was published in 1534. And it included the books from Genesis to Second Chronicles. And also the book of the prophet Jonah. So he had finished the New Testament and then he had started translating the New Testament in Greek. And then he had started translating the Hebrew into English as well. And he went from Genesis to Chronicles and also the book of Jonah. That was the interesting part. Tyndale translated the book of Jonah because he wanted every preacher in England to preach from the book of Jonah. And he wanted them to preach from the words of Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And with that Tyndale, he longed for every preacher to remind the people in his home country, to remind the bishops and the priests and all the cardinals, to remind them that England will be destroyed if it does not repent in sackcloth and ashes and humble itself and come to the foot of the cross in submission to Jesus Christ. That's what Tyndale longed for, his people to come to Jesus. Now, the 1534 edition of the Tyndale Bible, it's often been described as the glory of his life's work. Because it said that 90%, 90% of Tyndale's work can actually be found in the authorised version, the King James Version. And when King, the King James Version, when that was produced and authorised by King James in 1611, Tyndale's work was so good, it couldn't be improved upon. Tyndale was a master, not only of the English Bible, but he, you could say he was also a, the father of modern, the modern English language. Because with every verse that Tyndale translated, he was standardising the English language. There wouldn't be an English dictionary for at least another 150 years. But Tyndale's translation of the Bible, it became the English dictionary. And we owe many of our English phrases to Tyndale. Phrases like, let there be light. Or, am I, am I my brother's keeper? Or, the signs of the times. Or, a law unto themselves. We've all said these things. Or the phrase, in him we live and move and have our being. Or, fight the good fight. They're all Tyndale phrases. And the list is endless. But what's remarkable is that 500, 500 years after his great work was first published, we are still quoting Tyndale. And from what we've discovered this evening, we can say that without doubt, Tyndale's work, that was the spark which ignited the Reformation in Britain. That was the spark that ignited it all. But sadly, as we know, all good things have to come to an end. And after being a fugitive on the run for over 10 years, the wrath of the Church of England finally caught up with Tyndale. In 1535, after translating the New Testament from the original Greek and most of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew, translating them both into English, and after smuggling by that time 16,000 copies of the Bible into Britain, Tyndale was finally captured. And he was imprisoned in a castle outside Brussels for about 18 months. But then on the 6th of October, 1536, 
Tyndale, he was degraded from the priesthood. He was condemned to death as a heretic. He was tied to the stake. He was strangled by a steel chain. And then he was burned. But you know, the church hated Tyndale so much for what he had done. They hated him so much that they covered Tyndale's body in gunpowder. And they set him alight. And as you can expect, Tyndale's body was blown into so many pieces that there was nothing left to bury him. But you know, what's remarkable is that prior to his death, Tyndale's final words were the words of a prayer. O God, open the eyes of the King of England. That was his dying prayer. O God, open the eyes of the King of England. And amazingly, only two years after Tyndale's execution, that prayer was answered. And I'll I'll explain how it was answered. Just prior to Tyndale's death, and when Tyndale was in prison, when he was in Brussels, awaiting his death, there was this man called Miles Coverdale. And Miles Coverdale, he picked up where Tyndale left off. He took up the mantle, and he completed what Tyndale didn't manage to finish. And before Tyndale was executed, Miles Coverdale, he published the first complete Old and New Testament Bible into English. And then in 1537, that's after Tyndale's death, he died in 1536. In 1537, having successfully then separated from the Roman Catholic Church, Henry VIII sanctioned the printing. He sanctioned the printing of the English Bible in England. And then a year later, 1538, the King of England's eyes were open. Henry VIII's Prime Minister, who was then Thomas Cromwell, he commanded that every parish church in England own an English Bible for all to read. Isn't that amazing? Two years after Tyndale's death, everything changed in his home nation. And you know, it's humbling to think that what Tyndale did for the English-speaking world, he never got to see it. He never got to see it. But you know, we thank the Lord for him. We don't venerate him, but we thank the Lord for him. And how the Lord used him to produce the Bible we know and love today. And you know, considering the life of William Tyndale, it should cause us to see how precious the Bible is and how privileged we are to own a Bible and that we're able to read the Bible. Because, as we know, the Bible, it's the only rule to direct us. The Bible is the only book to help us, to comfort us, to speak to us, to guide us, to direct us. So, my friend, let's not neglect our Bible Because as we've heard tonight, it costs so much for us to have it. But you know, that's not the end of the Reformation story. Because as the English reformer William Tyndale, as he stepped off the stage of history in 1536, the Swiss reformer John Calvin, he was then arriving in Geneva. And you could say that as one man steps off the stage, the Lord was raising up another. The Lord always raises up the next man. 
waiting to move him into position to carry on his work. And so, well, we'll consider John Calvin next time when we come to look at the Swiss Reformation. So may the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, we give thanks to Thee for Thy Word. And we thank Thee, Lord, that we are able to read it, to meditate upon it, and to know that it speaks to us in our own language. We thank Thee, Lord, and we praise Thee that each and every one of us could say with the psalmist, that how sweet unto my taste, O Lord, are all Thy words of truth. Yea, I do find them sweeter far than honey to my mouth. We thank Thee, Lord, for Thy servants over the years who have translated Thy word. And we thank Thee, Lord, for those who are still translating it, who are still changing it into different languages to continue to spread it to different nations, the nations of the unreached peoples, those who are still ignorant, ignorant of God and ignorant of salvation. But we bless Thee and we praise Thee for the revelation of Thy word and the revelation of God that's found within it, and, O Lord, that thou art the one who desires to make thyself known, that all people will come to thee, that whosoever believeth will not perish, but have eternal life. Lord, bless us then, we pray. Remember us, we ask. Remember us, Lord, as a congregation, and remember especially the Smith family. We pray for them, and we ask, Lord, that thy word would be a comfort to them, that it would encourage them, Lord, that they would be reminded of the Jesus who never leaves, and who never forsakes, the one who is our constant, that although our life is ebbing and flowing and all the times of change are coming in, we thank the Lord that thou art the one who remains the same yesterday, today and forever. Cleanse us then, we pray, go before us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We shall conclude by singing the words of Psalm 19. Psalm 19, that's page 223. It's in the Scottish Psalter. We're singing from verse 7 down to the verse mark 10. And these words, they speak about God's law, God's word. And he says, God's law is perfect and converts the soul and sin that lies. God's testimony is most sure and makes the simple wise. And then down in verse 10 it says, They more than gold, ye much fine gold, to be desired are, than honey, honey from the comb, that droppeth sweeter far. So we're singing Psalm 19, these verses, to God's praise. <laughs>
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.